0: So anyway, we are, uh, I, I told you last week, we're, I'm, we're, we're, we're done doing the whole backdrop for the book of Philippians. For the first two weeks in our series, Truly Alive, I sort of did this big backdrop and I told you all about how we got there and about the church and all those things. We're not going to do that each week, uh, it just takes a lot of time and if you're here the first two weeks, you've heard it. If you'd like to hear it and like to kind of know where we're coming from, maybe you're here for the first time, you can visit the website, go online, all that's there. But we're going to kind of just jump into everything from this point on. We're really working through the book of Philippians verse by verse. And the idea really is this. Paul is giving this sort of special instruction to the group of gathered disciples or gathered believers in Philippi. And he loves them dearly. He has a deep relationship with them and he longs to give them his best. I mean, more so than any other of Paul's churches that he planted. He has this sort of special affinity for the Philippians, and so a lot of what we get in the book of Philippians is not Paul writing about fixing problems or heresies or struggles, but instead telling them the very best things that he has to offer. It's almost like if you were to to write a letter to a a child that was off in college or in the military or, or at another kind of strategic time in their life, and you were to write them sort of the best things that you think about life and how you'd want to live them, advice and just good wisdom, that's really what the book of Philippians is to the church in Philippi. It's to a young, growing group of believers that are isolated from other Christians. They're not surrounded by a lot of believers with a lot of depth and wisdom, so Paul's instruction to them is very important. And Paul is writing them, telling them that that life really is more than about just sort of waking up and doing the best you can. Waking up and drawing breath, and that somehow means that we're living. But, but really to be alive is, is more about finding moments of joy and obedience as followers of Christ. And saying, God, whether I live today or whether I die today, as we're going to learn, everything that I do is for your glory. And so Paul's instruction to them is that, that life has a different definition when you begin to follow Christ. And that's really where this whole series is going, is, is God has more purpose for our lives than just simply mere, merely drawing breath and saying, God, I'm going to do my best today. But that God has a purpose for our life that exists in joy and obedience and suffering and challenge and finding moments to say, God, you have and are my whole life and everything I do, I'll do to your glory. And so for the past two weeks, we've kind of worked from the introduction into the beginning of this letter. And last week, we began to talk about perspective. Really looking at it in terms of perspective is one of those things that we use sort of to mean a whole lot of things in our kind of contemporary language. We talk about perspective when it comes to looking at views, looking at things when it comes to mathematics or architecture. It all uses terms like perspective. And, And what we really landed on was that perspective is all about relationships. It's about how one thing relates to another, how you and I see circumstances and situations and how we orient our life to those things, and that no two perspectives are the same. We may have similar perspectives on things, but they're not the same, because I bring my background and my history and my struggles and my issues and all those things to it, and and you do the same, and even if we're looking at it similar, our perspectives aren't quite the same. And what Paul was challenging the Philippians to, without quite saying it in so many words, was to develop an eternal perspective, and a perspective that said, look, it's not about how I see the world or how you see the world or how the world tells you you should see it, but instead it's seeing the world and life through the eyes of Christ, and that God has this sort of eternal perspective in how he sees the world that that begins from before time ever began and never has an ending, that it goes on and that God knows every moment of your life, every breath that you'll draw, as the Bible tells us, every hair on your head. God's perspective is so radically different than the temporary way that we see the world, and so he's instructing the church in Philippi to have a perspective that sees things from an eternal perspective nature and eternal perspective. Well, today we're going to take that idea of eternal perspective leave it as a backdrop as we move through the first chapter of Philippians and begin to look at how we live this eternal perspective out. Because it's one thing to just say, okay, God, I want to see my life differently. It's another thing to say, God, I want to live my life differently. And so today, Paul's going to continue these thoughts about perspective as he challenges this group in Philippi to really begin to put pieces in place and in action that will cause them to live differently. And we're going to lift those out today. What we're doing with this book is we're just kind of working through it. Um, I just kind of, in a really easy way, teach through it, pick some things out, throw some things together, and then lift a few things out for us. So we're going to kind of look at it that way. Not a real fancy sermon with a bunch of points and a poem at the end or whatever, but just here's God's word, and here's what it's... Says and some things that we can lift out together. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Philippians chapter one. If you don't, there's one right around with you. You can grab it, uh, use it. If you don't own a Bible, keep this one. You can have it. I told everybody that first week. Tom buys them for us anyway. So, you know, I'm sure if you ask him nicely, he'll write your name in it or whatever. But he's gonna he'll get us some more. So it's a lot cheaper than go into Mardell's. You know, Tom's like, yeah, Sharpie. Like, What's your name? John? How do you spell it? Oh, J? Okay, good. And he'll write it on there and it'll be yours forever. So um Anyway, take one of those, and you're welcome to have it. Um, before we uh, open God's word, Philippians chapter 18, or one 18, uh, let's pray. God, I love the fact that we get to gather together and worship and learn and open your word. I love the fact that this church is made up of, of and led by very imperfect people, uh, Father, that, are, um, that just have a desire to know you and live authentically, um, Lord, I pray that as we open your word today and as we study your word, you would teach us something new about your heartbeat and your character, Uh, that, God, that we might see the idea of perspective differently as we challenge ourselves to live and think a little differently uh, with a little bit of an eternal perspective. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something today, just in these these moments that we have together, um, to teach you something about his character or his way, who he is, to open your eyes. Just pray that for yourself. for someone beside you, even if you don't know their name, it doesn't matter, just pray for them, pray that God would move in their life, pray that God would open their heart to who he is, Lord, we love you, and as we open your word, we pray that you would just instruct us and teach us, Um, we thank you, we're so grateful for Jesus, Lord, give us a reminder of the reason that we live um, today and we ask us in the perfect name of your son. Amen. Sweet, that took 20 seconds. Um minute hand's not moving. So. Um so I heard that. Okay, so uh We're going to start in verse 18. We wrapped up in verse 18 of chapter 1 last week as Paul kind of goes through this picture of rejoicing and he's telling the church of Philippi, he's saying, listen, even though I'm in chains and Paul is in prison, he's under house arrest, even though I'm in chains and I've gone through some pretty crazy circumstances, I find reason to be very joyful because I believe that God is using me to propagate and spread and advance the gospel is what he's saying. So he's saying even here in prison, God is using me to advance the gospel and I'm finding great joy. Now remember, Paul is in prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial in front of Caesar. He's actually been in prison for about five years. He's uh, been to several trials up and through kind of the area around Jerusalem. He's been transported to different prisons. He's been put on a boat, made to sail to Rome, shipwrecked, stranded on an island, bit by snakes. The past five years has been really difficult in paul's life and now he waits in rome in trial in chains to have his case heard before caesar and all paul is on trial for is not a criminal activity he's on trial because he was causing an uproar with the jews in jerusalem because paul believed that the god of isaac abraham and jacob was the only true god and that jesus was god's son and he was the only way to heaven that was what paul was on trial for um, and so he wanted to hear, have his case heard before Caesar because Paul was a Roman citizen. So he's waiting trial before Caesar. But most likely what's going to happen is that Paul is facing, and we're going to learn this, um, he's facing either significant prison sentence or death as he waits trial, being in chains for Christ. And so he's telling the church in Philippi, listen, don't be upset. I'm finding great reason to rejoice. Don't be sad that I'm in jail because God is using me to advance the kingdom of God. So, verse 18, right in the middle, he says, yes. And I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced to this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through, Christ, through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus may overflow on account of me. So Paul continues this picture of, of starting with this idea of I am joyful. Even in my crazy circumstance, I am joyful joyful. And he's been talking about perspective and he's going to begin to shift a little bit to, the, to talking about really how he chooses to live. And the current circumstance he is, how that eternal perspective affects the way that he lives. And he begins by saying, listen, I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So he's saying all these things, not just what's happened to me today in jail, waiting trial, but all these things over the past five years that have transpired in my life, all the imprisonments and the near-death experiences and the shipwrecks and the snake bites, and all the frustration and struggles that I've had, all the ways I've been in chains for Christ, all those things, That through your prayers and the spirit of Christ himself will turn out for my deliverance. And really that idea of deliverance can mean a couple of things. The word actually translates as deliverance and as the word salvation. And most likely, Paul's meaning a couple of things. One, he's meaning that sort of eternal picture that he's been talking about, which is all this that's happened will turn out for my deliverance. Literally, me going from death to life, me being delivered from this world to the other. It's a word that we kind of couple with the idea of salvation. That if we are delivered, we are taken from death to life. It's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He delivered us from death to life. We could not get there on our own. When you think about delivery, somebody has to take that thing to another place. Well, the idea is that Christ has delivered us from death through our sin to life in Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, look, all this will end in my eternal deliverance. I know that. But Paul also has a very kind of a literal interpretation with this idea, which is I know that this will lead to my deliverance from the situations that I'm in. Paul firmly believes, and we read that as we move through, that he will spend time with the Philippians again. He's saying, I believe that God will deliver me from this current circumstance that I'm in, all of these things that I've walked through, and I'll be delivered to you. In fact, later on in those verses, he says that I know that I will be with you, and it will bring you great joy in Jesus for me to spend time with you. Paul believed that his circumstance, in the middle of his circumstance, God had this, this radical plan. It had both an eternal component, and it had a, a component that took place in the here and now, that God, in other words, God was at work. And I think when we get in struggles and situations in our life, we're very quickly to go, God, where are you, right? God, things are not working out like I wanted. L- things aren't lining up right. Finances aren't lining up right. Relationships aren't lining up right. People aren't lining up right. Whatever it is, God, where are you? The first thing we do is say, God, where are you? I mean, if you were Paul, right in the middle of your circumstance in life, all five years of being kind of wrongfully imprisoned nearly killed, shipwrecked, I mean, every turn you'd be like, God, why, does thi- why do things keep having to happen like this to me? Just when I feel like i got a handle on something, the boat breaks down, and, and we, get, we finally get rescued and go to this island, and we find out that it's winter, and no boats can leave in the winter, and so we're there for four months, and, and while I'm trying to start a fire to keep everybody alive, I reach into this wood pile, and a snake bites me, and it turns out that snake is poisonous. I mean, all these things are happening to Paul, and it'll be real easy to look at that circumstance and go, God, where are you in all of this? And that's our our normal response, or at least it's mine, is when things like that, circumstances get heaped onto each other over and over and over again, it's so quickly just to say, God, what? I mean, seriously? One more thing could go wrong? What Paul sees is that, and we learned this last week, is that Paul doesn't see those things in his life as a series of things gone wrong, but he sees them as a series of opportunities to advance the gospel. God you put me in these circumstances and I find great joy there and he even goes on to say I believe that God will deliver me from this even now in other words God hasn't given up on me and he has a bigger plan for me So he continues and he says this I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now and always Christ will be exalted in my body. He says, even though I believe that God will deliver me, that God will move me from, from the current situation that I'm in, He will deliver me. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but have sufficient courage. Now, this idea of being ashamed is really an interesting one because when we use it in our culture and our language, we tend to think about some kind of social stigma or embarrassment, right? We're ashamed of something we've done or something we did or that people are going to find out what we do or who we really are or whatever. Or that, you know, we, we associate that, idea. of I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel by being, oh, I don't want people to think I'm a Bible beater or I'm intolerant or because I'm a Christian i would be like, conservative on these things or whatever. And So we tend to equate that idea of being ashamed with a social stigma or embarrassment. But really that's not what, what Paul's referring to or using these words with at all. Paul's actually not referring to any kind of social stigma. Everybody knows he's there and he's in chains for Christ. But really the idea that Paul's using with the word ashamed is that idea, afraid. You've got to, afraid, you've got to realize what's at stake for Paul. Five years Paul's been waiting trial to decide if he's going to live or die. Because what Paul proclaimed was that the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham was the only true God. And the Romans, you know what they believed? They believed that wasn't true. They believed not only were there multiple gods, but that Caesar himself was a god. And so for Paul to stand up and say, no, you're not a god, and there are no other gods, my god is the only one, was actually intolerance, and it was a death sentence in Rome. Every day that Paul woke was the day that he could face trial and be killed. So Paul's not really worried about a social stigma like, oh, I don't really want to say anything because I don't want the guard to think I'm a Bible beater or whatever. I don't want him to think that, you know, he doesn't use that word like that. What he's using that word is saying is that, God, I could choose the easy way out today. Because you know what Paul's in prison for? He's actually on trial because of what he believes in Christ. But he's a Roman citizen and he has extra kind of rights. What Paul could do if he wanted to was stand up and say this. Okay, look, here's the deal. I used to be kind of an extremist on my thinking about Jesus, but really I recognize that there's probably a lot of room for what we all believe, like I believe this about Jesus, you can believe that about your gods, and we'll all just sort of get along, and, and I, you know, it doesn't really matter. If Paul were to stand up and do that, the Romans most likely would say, great, thank you, you've actually taken a big burden off our shoulders, now we don't have to deal with you, everyone's tolerant, and we move on, and Paul walks out of prison. That's what he could choose. Because as a Roman citizen, that's what they wanted everyone to believe. They wanted everyone to believe that everybody's other ideas and gods and beliefs were okay. You have yours, don't mess with anybody else's, it's all the same. And if Paul were to take that point of view, he could probably walk out of prison today. But what Paul says is that I expect and I hope that I'll have sufficient courage and not be ashamed of the gospel. In other words, that I won't choose the easy way out today. But that instead, God, I'll hold tightly to what I believe. And then he says that I would have sufficient courage. Courage. And I love that idea of the word, the use of sufficient there, because it's not like Paul's trying to be a world, massive, world-changing superhero and say, look, I'm gonna overthrow Caesar and I'm gonna take over and we're gonna win the whole country to Christ, and I'm going to march and lead this rebellion. He's basically saying, Lord, give me enough courage for today to not choose the easy way out. To recognize that today I may face death in the stare death in the face. And I pray that you would give me just enough courage to make it today. We're gonna talk about that more in a little bit. But the idea being. I don't need to have it all. I just need to have enough for today. And then as I go forward, he says, I pray or I hope and expect that whether life or death, right, in my body, Christ would be exalted. And the idea of exalted is a word we don't use very often. I don't think you use it in your life. As I mean, I you certainly don't. Every, every once in a while, maybe. But it was a word that was really common in antiquity and really had a, a kind of a sense of, of being used with nobility. So the idea being uh, it had a kind of a tone of surrender to it. So if you were exalting a noble or a king, it would put them in a higher place and you would be in a lower place. It had a submission quality to it. So when we say the idea of Christ being exalted, it's not just that, hey, I'm up here and I lift Christ higher than myself. It's saying God is here, Jesus is here, and I am in submission and surrender. John chapter 3, John the Baptist uses this idea really strongly when he says, He, Jesus, must increase and I, John, must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. That's the idea of what it means to exalt, that God, you would be lifted up and I would decrease. And he's saying, Paul says, listen, here's what I desire for my life, that I have not be ashamed of sufficient courage so that whether I die today or whether I live today, God would be lifted up and I would surrender, right? That's what I pray for. That's what I'm hoping for. That was magic. That light just came on. It's awesome. So he goes on to say this, and he goes on to sort of state the dilemma again. He says, listen, here's the dilemma, verse 21. For me to live and Christ is Christ, and to die is gain. Meaning simply this, that that Paul's entire purpose and meaning for his life was because of Jesus. He drew every ounce of meaning and joy uh, from his relationship with Christ, saying, for me to live is because of or is Christ. Meaning that it's nothing I do, it's not on my own power. The fact that I draw breath and I live has nothing to do with me, Paul, but everything to do with Jesus. My life is because of and is Christ but to die well well that's gain because Paul recognized that he was created for this relationship with Jesus and if he were to die if today were the day that he were to draw breath and die he would get to go be with the God he was created to be with and so he saw that as hey whether I live today it's because of Jesus but if today's the day that I die which was a very real possibility then that's better and so he goes on to state the dilemma by saying this for if I go on living in the body right this will mean fruitful labor for me yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So he's saying, look, here's a dilemma. I'd just as soon die. I've been in prison for five years and it's a huge struggle. he said, I'd rather, I'd just as soon go be with Jesus. But it's better for you that I live. Because this was the place where this church, this young group of believers, they gathered joy from and encouragement from. In fact, Paul, earlier in chapter 1, calls them partners. That he finds great joy in who they are. said, it's better for you that I remain. It's necessary that I remain in the body. Convinced to this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that my being with you again, because Paul believes he's going to see them again. Believes that God will deliver him, see, Be with you again. Um, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. So all this to kind of get to a couple of thoughts. And, uh, and and they're really powerful, at least for me. Probably, maybe not for you, but they're powerful for me. Um, and, the, and the first thing that I think about when, it, when I look at this text and I think about my own relationship with Christ is, is the idea of, of trying to remember who my audience is. Now, most of us are people pleasers. We, want, we care deeply about it, and most likely are consumed with what people think about us. Now, I know that none of us want to use that word. None of us really want to say that out loud. But let's just be honest: we are wrapped up in what people think about us. I know it's really cool to say, "I don't care what people think. I do my own thing." Well, nobody really believes that because you want people to like you. You want them to think you're a good husband, dad. You want them to be good at work. You don't want them to think you're a criminal and abuser and all those kind of things. I mean, you want people to think well of you, right? It's, a, it's the reason when I bump into anybody that hasn't been to church in a while, and I see you at Starbucks or the bank or whatever, the first thing you have to tell me is why I haven't been to church. You're like, oh, you know, my dog. You know, here's the deal, Trevor, I'll be honest: with you, my dog got the Ebola. Virus, and so we've had to, you know, spend some time with that. And then I, I got, a, a, I started working again on uh, Thursdays. So now I work Wednesdays and Thursdays. So, you know, it makes Sundays hard because I got to make lunches uh, at, in the afternoon. So, you know, we've got that whole deal. You know, and you feel the need to be like, please don't think that I'm skipping church. I mean, I don't care. I mean, it makes Jesus cry. But, I mean, that's a whole other deal. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't know. But the point is, we care what people think. I mean, let's be honest. We really care. And, the, and it's not that we shouldn't because, I mean, we want to be good, have good testimonies. We want people at work to think that we're working hard. We want our wives to know that we love them, or our husbands to know that we support them and care for them. We want people to think well of us because that in turn makes our testimony stronger. So I'm not saying that those things are inherently wrong. What I am saying is that there, there's a fine line because so quickly we turn to play or live for the audience that's temporary, not for the audience that matters. We live for the response and the voices and the approval of people and not of the Lord. It's what drives us first, right? It's the reason we try and make our lives look as pretty as they can on Facebook because we want people to think that our lives somehow match up with the lives of people around us. It's the reason that we long for things. It's the reason a lot of us drive cars that we can't afford and live ways that we can't because somehow we think that if we just do those things, it will add some kind of depth to our life that will make me feel better about me or will make you think better that we've got it together. And we never put those things out there out loud, but it's just true. And we get our audiences all confused and we begin to live for the praise and the applause of people. And what Paul's saying is that I hope that whether I face life or death, I'm not gonna be afraid of the gospel or ashamed of it. He's saying, look, Jesus, I could choose the easy way. I could stand up here and I could declare that these things aren't big in my life anymore and I could walk out. And I could probably have a very fruitful ministry from the time I walked out of here. I could take more missionary journeys and I could lead more people to Christ and I'd be more effective outside of here. But he says, my audience isn't the world. My audience isn't even me. My audience is you. So who are you living to please? Who are you living to um, demonstrate sort of the success of your life for? And I think a lot of us are so hung up on what other people are thinking and doing, and even what we even think of ourselves. that We misplace our audience. And part of the rem- reminder about living with an eternal perspective is that, God, really, it is all, it's only you that matter. And if I'm faithful to you and the world hates me, what do I do? The second thing that sort of jumped out on there to me is the idea of really living for today. And it's not explicitly like written in there, but I, can, I really feel it in Paul's words that every day Paul woke was a day where he had to make a, a decision. Today, God, I'm going to find joy and purpose in my life with you, or I'm going to be discouraged and frustrated and upset about my circumstance. Paul recognized that his life was a daily decision to give everything he had to Christ, whether life or death. Now, I want to please people, and I want to be the best I can at everything. I want to be a great dad, I want to be a great husband, I want to be a great pastor, I want to be a great friend, I want to be a great whatever, 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 whatever. The problem is I'm a colossal disaster and a sinful mess and so I can do none of those things really well but I long for them and I try and do everything I can to advance those things and oftentimes, I look at my life in terms of if I can just get there, right, if we can just save enough money and pay this off or do this then we can fix the house here or we can do this or if I can just do this then everyone will be happy or we can get the church at this point then everyone will be happy, we can do whatever. Now everything's pushed and prolonged and moved down there, and my entire life is driven by getting to there. The problem is there's a moving target, and all it gets kicked down the road, right? I'm in my early 20s, 30s, whatever, and I am uh, never, I'm still not there. I keep thinking I'm going to make it one day, and we're going to hit there, but it's just not happening. I mean, it seems like every time I get there, there's another set of hurdles that I want to make towards and The next thing you know, I look up, and my daughter's 10, and I've been married 15 years, And I'm still waiting to perfect that day when I can finally give everything I have. And what I was realizing in this text was that Paul's saying, he said, look, I want courage for today. I want joy for today. You blink and these things are gone. We live for a prolonged result of something we're chasing that will just continue to move down the road. At some point in time, we have to stop and wake up and say, God, whether I live or die, everything I do, I want to be for you today. I want to love my wife today the way that you love me. I want to support my husband today the way that you support me. God, I want to love my friends and my coworkers today the way that you love me. God, I want to stop, right? And I want to actually live in this moment with the courage that it takes because I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. That somebody walks into your life or you have a family member in your life who you know that you deeply want to know Christ and you keep kicking that can down the road to say when the time's right, when the time's right, when the time's right, the time will never be right why because you're a disaster and so am i at some point in time today is the day we ask for courage and joy to live in this moment right now meaning what, what what we do when we walk out of these doors makes a huge difference and then finally there's this idea of of finding purpose and meaning in life by going to the source directly to christ and i won't talk a lot about this simply because i i do this all the time but the idea is simply this Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, meaning everything in my life is wrapped up in Jesus. That's it. I live not because of Jesus, but I live because Jesus allows me to. He gives me life and breath. He gives me reason to sing and dance in love. He gives me reason to rejoice in prison. He gives me reason to see my current circumstances as opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. My entire life is Jesus. And a lot of us walk around this earth with hopelessness kind of meaningless empty lives and we wonder why we try and stuff everything we can into every one of those corners we try and do it with affection of people we try and do it with things and stuff and whatnot and the reality is it will never find joy and meaning and purpose into our life until we go to the source the source of life the source of meaning and that's what Paul's saying he's saying for me to live is Christ that's it that's it and if I were to die well that's just better I was telling somebody the other day, about a week and a half ago, uh, struggling, having huge issues, that at the end of the day, we're never going to be able to fix those issues until we return to the source and just say, God, you're all that matters. No amount of doing or praying or sitting up or whatever is going to make any difference until we just say, Jesus, I want you to be my life. I want you to be the meaning of my life. I want you to be the reason that I live. And there's probably no better picture of, of this sort of lived out eternal perspective in our lives in this table this table really is the picture of Christ's extravagant love for us. It's, it's the picture that calls us to remember our audience being the audience of the God that created us, that we're called to live in this moment today and to return to the source to find our strength and joy and courage. We won't draw it from anywhere else. You know, on that night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, he got together with the disciples and he taught them and they had incredible moments. Um, but he, he did something that would forever change Um, the way that we celebrate and worship together, and that is he gave them a demonstration of what he was about to do. That Jesus was about to give his life as a sacrifice for the sin of humanity, and he gave them a way of remembering those moments. And that's really what this table is. This table is a reminder of God's extravagant, unconditional, amazing love for us that calls us to a life that is beyond the temporary and rooted in the eternal. And so today, as we celebrate this meal together for the first time in our new space, it means the exact same thing it meant to those gathered believers some 2,000 years ago, that Jesus is so deeply in love with us that he would lay down his own life that we might know him, the ultimate picture of eternal extravagance when it comes to the way that he loves us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God that moves beyond all of our expectations, that moves beyond all of our dreams and desires, God, to remind us of your calling and purpose in our life. God, you created the stars and the trees, that you literally breathed life into our lungs. Psalm 139 says that you created our inmost being. Lord, I pray that as we gather in this place, we would be reminded of that. And that you sent your Son, that in the middle of our helpless struggling, sinful state. He died for our sin that if we believe and trust in him, we have eternal life and the promise of his return. Be glorified as we share this meal together. We ask this in Jesus' name. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, and he sat with his disciples. After giving thanks, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he poured it and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's the new covenant poured out for you. That when we take of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This morning and always, uh, we take communion by means of intinction, which is a really super fancy uh, word that just means take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. We'll have two stations. We'll have one in the back. We're trying to use our new space well. One in the back of the room and one down front. We just ask that this side of the room uses this one and this side of the room uses that one. And you go through you take a piece of bread you dip it in the cup. But as we participate in this meal together, let us remember that this isn't some ritual. This isn't something that we do that's become church practice, but this is an earth-shaking movement of God's love. And that as we celebrate this meal together, we are proclaiming the eternal nature of who God is, that He is our audience, that we're called to live in these moments, and that He is the source for the meaning and joy in our lives. So as we prepare to take this meal together, I'm going to invite our servers to come forward. Dawn, the band, continue to lead us in worship this morning. I encourage you to come forward as you feel led. Use the moments to sit there and deal with the Lord if you must, if you need to. Whatever God's working in you, come forward or, or I guess back.